their way out, why don't you grab your Bibles or whatever you're going to be reading God's Word in and make your way to the Gospel of Matthew once again in chapter 17. We're going to be looking in verses 1 through 13 this morning. As you can see behind me, this uh, event, this passage is also found in the Gospel of Mark. It's also found in the Gospel of Luke. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what are known as the synoptic Gospels. What that means is they are the most similar to one another. And though it may seem as we're getting closer to the end of Matthew that we're getting ready to wrap up our series, we've still got quite a bit to look at in Jesus' ministry. My kids have asked me in the past couple of weeks, when are we going to start looking at some of the parables? And most of the parables are found in the Gospel of Luke, though you can find some in some of the other Gospels. We also haven't really touched a whole lot on the Gospel of John and there's a lot of teachings within that gospel that is going to come in this latter part of Jesus' earthly ministry. But let's look at what we're going to be looking at this morning. It's the, known as the transfiguration of Jesus and see what the implications of this event are to have in our life. And the word of the Lord says, And after six days, Jesus took him with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking, but behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The disciples heard this. They fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. But when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. The disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Now going back to verse 1, Matthew and the Gospel of Mark both agree with the time stamp of six days. Well, in the Gospel of Luke, he opens this passage up by now about eight days after this saying. And it might seem like the Gospels are contradicting one another or they're not finding a place of agreement. But the point of the writing in all three of the Gospels is to let us know that about a week has passed since Jesus' teaching when, it's, when he spoke about taking up one's cross. Most likely, Jesus and his disciples were able to finally break away and find rest between the six or eight days or in the time concerning that week. The mentioning of Peter, James, and John, his brother there in verse 1, going up with Jesus isn't abnormal. Now, Jesus didn't play favorites with his disciples, but these three individuals seemed to be a little bit closer to him than the other nine. They were the same three that journeyed into the Garden of Gethsemane a little bit deeper into the garden than the other disciples as Jesus went into there to pray before he was going to be arrested. Some say they were the inner disciples. 
but the most likely were individuals who were just a little more intentional about being close with Jesus because they're going to be set apart for the ministry after Jesus ascends into heaven. Peter, for example, is going to become the pastor of the first Christian church within Jerusalem. James is going to be the first disciple that is going to be martyred for the faith. John, the apostle, is going to receive other visions with the book of Revelation. He is also going to be the disciple that's going to write more books than any other disciple in the New Testament. And the only individual who wrote more books in the New Testament than John was the apostle Paul. Now, we don't know what the other disciples were doing at this particular moment in time as Jesus and these three men went up the mountain. They maybe have just been staying down and hanging out and finding a little more rest. We can't know for sure. We also can't know which mountain this exactly is. There's a lot of ideas and a lot of thoughts that goes along with it, but that really doesn't matter when it comes to what took place on top of the mountain. I can't imagine Peter, James, and John, as they're following Jesus up this mountain, knew what to expect and had any idea what they were going to experience. And this event is going to be a turning point in Jesus' ministry as he's going to become even more focused in trying to prepare these men who have been following him and what is going to happen when he arrives in Jerusalem and they're ultimately going to kill him. The word transfigured there in verse 2 can also be read as transformed or changed. It's the same Greek word that Paul was led to use in Romans chapter 12 when he says believers should be transformed by the renewal of your mind. He used that word one more time in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18 and he writes, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And even though this passage is focusing on the transfiguration of Jesus, one implication that we can take into our life is that we are to be transformed like Jesus. This is our spiritual maturation process. This is one of our heartbeats at Harvest Hill, that we are to mature in our relationship with God. And the goal isn't to gain more head knowledge about the Bible, though that's going to happen. The goal is that we become more like Jesus as we grow in our relationship with him. If you look in the book of Acts, there's a church known as Antioch, which was mostly a Gentile church. And in that particular context, what that meant was they were non-Jewish individuals. The Judeo-Christian church was located in Jerusalem, but the Gentile Christian church was located in Antioch. And there we're told in Acts chapter 11 that in the church of Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. See, up to this point in history, the new believers that emerged from the coming of the Holy Spirit were thought to believe just another sect of Judaism. But then something changed as they began watching these individuals as they gathered together. The world started to see a group of people who were talking like, and they were acting like, and they were thinking like, and they were following the teachings of Jesus Christ. They were different. They saw this group of people that, you know, they're not really tied to Judaism. They're something completely separate from that. And the title Christian, which many of us call ourselves, actually originally came out as a joke. It was meant to make fun of this group of people, but then the early believers, they took this title as Christian as a badge of honor, became a title so well known that in Acts chapter 26, 
The Apostle Paul is sharing his testimony with King Agrippa before he's going to be sent off to Rome. And as he shares his testimony, what Jesus Christ did for him, Agrippa responds in a short time, Would you persuade me to be a Christian? The title Christian can only be found in three places in the entire New Testament as far as in Scripture. It's found twice in the book of Acts and once in 1 Peter. And the usage in 1 Peter lets us know that that title had now been adopted by believers, by Christians. The title itself means little Christ. And believers didn't initially use the title because they referred to themselves as disciples. They referred to themselves as followers of Christ. And so what that means when we put this all together is to be a Christian is to be a disciple, is to be a follower of Jesus Christ for the purpose of being transformed like Jesus. So the implication with that is if we're not being transformed like Jesus, then are we really being a Christian? Can we really call ourselves a disciple or follower? The Bible points out we are saved to be transformed, to be changed, transfigured, to become more like Christ, so Jesus can be seen in and through our lives. The reason we're to be transformed is the same reason that Jesus was transformed on this mountain here in Matthew chapter 7. He was transformed to radiate God's glory. The image of verse 2 is a very similar way to which the Apostle Paul or Apostle John saw Jesus when he saw the visions that make up the book of Revelation. Luke tells us this transformation happened while Jesus was praying and the appearance of his face was altered. Gospel Mark doesn't even mention the appearance of Jesus' face, but elaborates on the changing of his clothing. He says, his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Matthew does his best to describe both things when he says, his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. What these men were witnessing was the full glory of Jesus and what he was going to appear like when he finally ascended into heaven in his full glory in the presence of the Father. They were witnessing the glory of God right before their eyes. And that's what transformation is meant to accomplish. That we too would radiate God's glory. Jesus taught earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. And hear this, give glory to the Father who is in heaven. So we are growing and becoming more like Jesus, being transformed to radiate the glory of the Father. All three Gospels agree that the three disciples saw Jesus' transformation and then something strange happened. A conversation began to take place between Jesus and Moses and Elijah. And, and how they knew it, it was Moses and Elijah, I have no clue. Because it's not like they had photographs or they had, you know, Old Testament trading cards. Perhaps Jesus told them it was Moses and Elijah. Perhaps Jesus referred to them by name and the disciples heard it. Because Jesus would have known these men from the Old Testament. Now, Jewish tradition holds that it was these two men because they never died. We can read in the Old Testament that Elijah was taken up to heaven, but Deuteronomy is very clear that Moses did in fact die because the Israelites mourned him for a period of time before crossing into the Promised Land. The mention of Moses and Elijah in this situation holds significance to what they represented. Moses represented the law of God. You read through the Old Testament and parts of the New Testament, you see that the law of God is frequently referred to as the law of Moses. Obviously, it wasn't his. 
but he was the instrument that God used to deliver his law to his people. Elijah is a representation of the prophets. He never has a book in the Old Testament bearing his name, but he's frequently mentioned in the books of 1 and 2 Kings and 1 and 2 Chronicles. He was the first prophet to emerge when Israel split into the northern and southern kingdoms. In the Old Testament book of Malachi, there's a prophecy concerning Elijah that he would return. In the book of Deuteronomy, there's a prophecy saying one like Moses would be raised up again amongst God's people. And so this meeting on the mountain is the indication that Jesus is the epitome of both these men. He is the great prophet to speak to God's people who have been separated. They had division. And he would be the true giver, interpreter, and fulfillment of God's law for the people. And we've seen through chapter 16, if you've been here in the last couple weeks, Peter once again finds an opportunity to speak up on what he is witnessing. He's in awe. He's amazed. He wants to set up camp. There's some who believe Peter is making this statement not just because he wants to stay in the moment, but this was the time of one of the three main Jewish festivals known as the uh, Feast of Booths. And the festival or Feast of Booths, what the Jewish people do during this time is they would set up camps or shelters and they would live under them to remind them of when they wandered through the wilderness and God protected them and provided them for them. If that's the case, then that means this event happened in the fall. Others believe Peter wanted to set up camp not to just stay in the moment, but he was a Jewish man and Jewish traditions held that you practice hospitality. Where Peter planned to get the resources for the tents, I don't know. But he volunteered James and John to help them build a campsite. We can't really blame Peter. I think we do the same thing. We have this encounter with God, these moments where we're overwhelmed with the presence of God, something I believe some of our students are going to have here in a couple weeks when they go to camp. We want to stay in that moment. But like Moses, who went up the mountain and experienced the presence of God on Mount Sinai, and like these three disciples who went up the mountain with Jesus here in Matthew, the reality of what Scripture points out is we all have to come down the mountain. And we all have to go back into everyday life. But it's at this point Peter and the other two are going to receive a lesson. We saw in chapter 16, sometimes Peter speaks before he thinks. And after Peter speaks in verse 5, it says, A bright cloud overshadowed them. And the Greek isn't quite clear whether it overshadowed Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, or it overshadowed the three disciples who were observing what was happening. But the point of the cloud overshadowing would have reminded these men of what occurred in the Old Testament. When God spoke to his people, their ancestors, through a cloud, and when God led his people by a cloud by day as they wandered through the wilderness. The first thing said is word for word to Peter and the disciples there in verse 5. Word for word of what was spoken when Jesus came out of the waters of baptism when John baptized him. He says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so what we have here in the Gospel of Mark is something very important. It is marking, or Gospel of Matthew, it's marking two things occurring. This one statement, 
When it was initially stated after Jesus' baptism, it marked the beginning of his ministry. And when he would take off and he would start teaching people to repent for the kingdom of God is near. Here in Matthew chapter 17, it's marking that Jesus is edging closer to the end. He's heading to Jerusalem to be crucified. But God adds something else here to transfiguration. He says, listen to him. And this is something that Peter's been failing to grasp and something at times I think, well, I know I fail to grasp. Maybe it's something you can relate that you fail to grasp. Is that we are to listen to Jesus. It's like God is telling Peter, look, Peter, Jesus is my son. He is the fulfillment of my law and the prophets. He is the one I am pleased with. So just hold your tongue, listen and follow to him. He knows what he's doing. You're not in charge here, Peter. The word listen in the Greek means more than just hearing. The word listen in the Greek means to obey, to conform, to pay close attention. And so God speaks from this cloud and he says, hey guys, pay attention to my son. Conform to the way that he is living. Obey what he is teaching you. And this is what we're called to as believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. It says that we have the mind of Christ. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, it says, Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And that word walk doesn't literally mean walking. It means how you live your life. That we are to live our life the way Jesus lived his life. Galatians chapter 5, verse 25 says, If we, have the Spirit, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep step with the Spirit. So we listen to Jesus, we conform to Jesus, we obey Jesus, we have the mind of Jesus, we live like Jesus lived so we can keep step with Jesus. And the only way we can keep step with Jesus and the Spirit is if we're plugged into the Word of God. The Gospel of John tells us in chapter 1, verse 14, that Jesus was the Word which became flesh and dwelt among us. And there have been times in my ministry where I've had young students and I've had adults come to me and say, I'm just not hearing God. I, I just, he doesn't seem like he's talking to me. And there might be some individuals in this room who are going through that struggle in this very moment. And my response to them and my response to you, and I mean to say this in a loving way, are you in God's word? Are you reading it? Are you listening to it? The Bible says in 2 Timothy that all Scripture is breathed out by God. It tells us concerning Scripture in 2 Peter, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so God speaks through His Word. That's how He speaks to His people. He does that through teaching. He does that through preaching. He does that through small group. These words are directly from the mouth of God. So the issue, if we ever come to that place where I'm just not hearing from God, the issue might be, are we reading the Word of God? Are we listening to the Word of God? Are we going to what God has already spoken for all eternity? I understand there's going to be times that we're going to want direction and we're going to want guidance. Maybe we've got a decision to be made. or Maybe there's something going on we just don't fully understand. And sometimes... If you haven't been there, you're going to get there at some point. The answers don't always come right away. And it seems kind of hopeless. 
But it's in those times that we go to the Word of God and we pray. And here's the thing about prayer that I think some of us need to understand. Prayer isn't just talking to God. Prayer is listening to God. It's being still before His presence. It's allowing the Spirit to speak to our hearts. There have been times in my life where I had to make a decision, so I prayed. And then the problem was is I was the only one who talked. And I'll tell God all the things I wanted to see done. And I'd ask God all the questions I didn't understand. I don't know if you've ever been in a conversation with an individual where you can never get a word in. It's not a conversation, is it? Or when you actually do say something, it's like what you said didn't matter whatsoever. It's very frustrating. But I wonder if it comes to some of our prayer lives, if God feels that way about us, that we do all the talking and we never let him get a word in. It's hard to listen when we do all the talking. As these events unfold, disciples, they fall on their faces when they hear this voice. That's verse 6. Typically in Scripture, when an individual would fall on their face, when they hear the word of God or the voice of God, it was because they were in awe or in reverence of what was taking place right before their eyes. But in this particular instance, they were terrified. They were driven with fear. The response mirrors the Israelites as they sat at the base of Mount Sinai. And God's presence consumed the mountain, and they heard the thundering of his voice. And I believe the outcome there was the outcome that God wanted to get here. There Moses told the Israelites, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be in you, and that you may not sin. Disciples are going to experience in the upcoming year was going to test their loyalty. It was going to test their boldness. It was going to test them whether they were going to fear God or they were going to fear people. And initially, they failed the test. But when the Holy Spirit came upon them, they had no more fear. They actually would be persecuted and they would say, we need to pray for more boldness. We need to pray for more opportunities to preach. Matter of fact, this particular instance would have such an impact on Peter that he would write about it in the second letter bearing his name. As the event begins to come to a close in verse 8, disciples and Jesus, they, they begin to head down the mountain. And Jesus gives them a command that they are not to share anything about this vision until he has been raised from the dead. And again, what we're finding here is we come through this, this gospel. Jesus is trying to prepare this, these men for what is going to take place because it's going to shock them. It's not what they expected. But they turn to Jesus and they ask him a question in verse 10. It's not the question I would have asked, though. I put myself in this situation. I said, what I, is that what I would have asked? I probably would have asked, so what, what are Moses and Elijah like? What would you all talk about? I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want some inside scoop. But their question is, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Now, the scribes are the teachers of the law, or what we refer to as the Old Testament And they had pulled this teaching from a prophecy that I mentioned earlier in the book of Malachi. It comes from chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. And there it reads, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so the interpretation of the scribes with that particular passage is that it would be a literal Elijah, physical Elijah, that would return because they understood that Elijah never died. He was taken up to heaven. 
And so what Jesus says is that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. That's verse 12. So the prophet Elijah came to prepare the way for the Lord, for the returning of God's people to him. And so in verse 13, Matthew is led to give us an insert by the power of the Holy Spirit that the understanding to what Jesus is speaking about from verse 12, that it's not going to be a literal prophet Elijah, but it is going to be a representation of the ministry of Elijah's prophecies and what he did in the land of Israel. And so he points out there in verse uh, 13 that the disciples understood this, that the Elijah spoken of in Malachi and Elijah that Jesus is pointing to in Matthew 17 is in fact John the Baptist and his ministry has come. And just like Elijah, John the Baptist was ridiculed and questioned by the religious leaders. He was enjoyed by the Jewish people for a period of time. He became almost a fad, but unlike Elijah, John the Baptist eventually is beheaded. And so what we learn as this event begins to uh, come to a close And the lesson we take here is we are to understand the times through Jesus. We are to understand our world through the word of God. And Jesus is the living word of God. And here's why I say that. This world changes its rules. This world changes its definitions of things. This world changes its definition of people. And how they are to be identified. This world changes its views of what is right, what is wrong, what is appropriate, or what is inappropriate. Yet here's a truth that we all have to understand as God's people. God does not change. He does not change his world word. God, however, has rules set in place which are set in place into eternity. Our God has already defined things. Our God has already defined what and who people are. Our God has already set in place what is good and what is evil, what is acceptable, what is unacceptable. Our God, through his word, has already defined where and how we would find a blessing or how we would find a curse. And it's all living according to what God has spoken in his word. And so when we look out at our world and we begin observing it, whether that's through news or social media or social encounters or interactions or internet, we always must look at what is going on in our world through the word. It isn't about what a politician or activist group or world leader says about something. Rather, it is what has God already spoken about this. And maybe there's some here to say, well, God doesn't deal with everything that's going on in our world. And I want to correct you. Yes, he does. God has defined marriage. God has defined how people who are married should treat one another within that marriage. God has defined what constitutes as life. He has defined what how we should respond and treat individuals who are in positions of power. He has defined people as people, not animals. He has defined there are only two genders which people are born to, and that's male and female. And just to make it clear, he made it scientifically evident by giving two types of chromosomes. 
He has defined how we should handle our finances. He has defined how we should do our jobs. He has defined, if we are a parent, how we should parent our children. Children, students, he has defined how you should honor your parents. He has defined how we should treat people. God, through his words, defined how we should view and handle war. He has defined how we should treat people and view people who are not like us and those who do not agree with us. He has defined what sports team we should root for. KC, Kingdom of Christ, right there. He has defined, if you're married, who within that marriage should make the coffee. He brews. I heard that joke this week. I had to use it. He has defined the heart of an individual who runs for no reason. Proverbs 28.1, the wicked flee or run when no one pursues. He has defined that physical training is beneficial, but is more important, not more important than spiritual training. He has defined that he is a God of action. In English, action words are verbs, and God is pro-verbs. Proverbs. Okay, sorry. I'm a dad and a preacher, so these are jokes you get. He has defined why our bodies get aches and pains as we get older. He has defined even how we should treat our pets. He has defined how this world will eventually end. And so there's nothing that can be redefined because God has already defined it. Not only has he defined that all people are either born male or female, he has defined that There are actually only two types of people in this world. It has nothing to do with nationality. It has nothing to do with skin color. It has nothing to do with wealth or poverty. There are only two types of people in this world. You're either lost in your sin or you're saved for eternity. And if you're here this morning and you're unsure which one you are, then God has defined this day to be the day of your salvation that your identity would change and you would know for certain that this, this was the last day I breathed breath on this earth. I will see my Father in heaven. And God has defined it through his word to be very simple. It begins by admitting to God that you're a sinner. The sin, as God defines it, means you fall short of his holiness and his perfection. But knowing that you're a sinner, you believe that God loves you so much that that's why he sent his only son, Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross taking our punishment for our sin. And he rose from the grave that we could find forgiveness. And the Bible says if we believe that in our heart, we must confess it with our mouth and we will be saved. If you're here this morning and you're not sure which type of person you are, then let's change that today. Let's let God change that today. We're going to have a time of invitation. I'm going to ask Jackson to come up and lead us. And if you need to come down... And let this be the day of your salvation. You have to come, just come to me and say, Pastor Michael, I want to be saved. And we'll pray together. We'll talk together. We'll celebrate together. But God is good. All the time. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us and taking care of us. Thank you for blessing us and showing us your mercy, your kindness. 
and giving us a book that we can hear from you, but we can also understand this world that you created. Lord, there's a lot of confusion in this community. There's a lot of confusion in this world about identity. So let us be a people, Lord, who are being transformed by you so that we can love those people and we can bring them out of the darkness and into your marvelous light. I thank you, Lord, that it is your will that all people would be saved. And you empower us to be a part of that mission. Forgive us if we failed you in any way, and we praise in the name of Jesus.